This is Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Mitch LaFawn. Welcome to another edition of Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. And I, of course, am the one, the only, the mighty Steve Brown. All right, nobody can be Steve Brown except Steve Brown. So I am uh, Mitch LaFawn. Do yourself a favor. In fact, do me a favor. Head over to loudtracks.com, L-O-U-D-T-R-A-X.com forward slash Mitch and pick up one of the uh, show's t-shirts. You will quite enjoy those. I have my own and I love it. Go figure. My wife, she looks at me and she goes, are you wearing a shirt with your own name on it? What the hell? Anyway, uh, jokes aside, we are here to to, uh, listen to Holly Knight, singer, songwriter, Holly Knight. She, of course, was in a band called Spider back in the day, and it was managed by Bill O'Coyne, which, if you listen to my interview yesterday with Steve Stevens, Steve and Billy were managed by Bill O'Coyne. Of course, my favorite band, Kiss, was managed by Bill O'Coyne. A lot of, a lot of Bill O'Coyne, you know, a lot of people just think, well, he's Kiss only, but he was a little bit everywhere, and... Uh, Let's uh, let, let's talk songwriters. So we're we're gonna get behind the song here. It is a good uh, about an hour interview, and we get to hear Holly explain how she writes songs, who she writes them for, and stuff. And um, just a lot of great songs that she's written over the years that have affected me personally, and that had that have had meaning to me. You know, you look at um, a song like "Hide Your Heart," recorded by Bonnie Tyler, recorded by Ace Frehley. Recorded by Molly Hatchet, and of course Kiss. Um, and I have to say, um, and and maybe you can you can comment on this too. But but I do think that the Ace Frehley version is the best one. He sort of captured the angst and the I don't know was there angst in Hide Your Heart? But he he seems to have captured sort of the rock and roll of it. Then of course there was Aerosmith's Ragdoll, co-written with uh, Jim Valens, who of course. Uh, we spoke to before, we went out to see his play Pretty Woman in uh, New York and on Broadway earlier in May. Absolutely terrific play. And uh, since, since, since we mentioned Brian Adams and Billy Idol here in the same breath, let me just mention that Brian Adams and Billy Idol are on tour this summer for, get this, eight dates. It is uh, the, the most efficacious summer tour ever. But I'm going to read you these dates. They start August 1st in Guilford, New Hampshire at the Bank of New Hampshire Pavilion, which is where I will be. I love the Guilford uh, Pavilion and all that. Now, for anybody who's ever been to the Guilford Pavilion, you you basically need to be a, a Navy SEAL to be able to access the site. It is built in the middle of absolutely nowhere uh, up and down these snaky, meandering, windy roads. It will test your patience. It will test your resolve. But once you get there, you will have a rock and roll evening that you can never forget. But holy mackerel, I, I have no idea how they said, you know what, we are going to take a major festival site or a major venue site. We are going to find the most obscure part of New Hampshire to place it in and we'll build it here. Really? Really? <laughs> okay. Why not? Who needs accessibility to an actual site? I mean, whatever. Uh, then uh, August 3rd at it, at the uh, Mohegan Sun in uh, Yukisville, uh, Connecticut. Then at the uh, Jones Beach... Uh, let me try that again. At the Jones Beach Theater in Wontog, 
on August 4th, Syracuse on August 6th at the St. Joseph, Joseph's Health Amphitheater at Lakeview. By the way, what happened to the good old days when you, when you just called the stuff like the Forum? Why is everything so complicated now? Anyway, uh, the Syracuse show is another one that I'm hoping to attend. And I'll, and I'll finish this real quick. Uh, Clarkston, Michigan at the DTE Energy Music Theater, August 7th. Darien Center at the Darien Lake Amphitheater, August 9th. And we, of course, are talking about Billy Idol and Brian Adams at the PNC Bank Arts Center in Homedale, New Jersey, on August 10th. And yes, two weeks after the tour begins, the Billy Idol Brian Adams tour wraps up at the Jiffy Lube uh, Live, I guess, Arena the Amphitheater in Bristow, Virginia on August 12th. And um, yeah, when when you need lube, you do need it in a Jiffy. That is absolutely uh, uh, essential. Now, uh, just getting back to quickly, quickly here to Holly Knight. Uh, she also wrote a, the song Space for Cheap Trick. And she has re-recorded it with, or she's had a new artist record it, and I'm not going to say who because I don't know if that's up to me to say, but I've had a chance to hear it. Absolutely spectacular female voice doing that song. Terrific. Absolutely terrific. And, of course, uh, Just Between You and Me, Lou Graham, and so many other stuff. Um, she also wrote songs on Kiss's uh, Psycho Circus, I Pledge Allegiance to the State of Rock and Roll, Raise Your Glasses, and more. Anyway, um, I hope you appreciate or I hope you like these behind the music or behind the songs kind of episodes. I've done Jim Valance. I've done uh, Tom Worman. Uh, who else have we done recently in terms of writers? Uh, 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 Ron Nevison, well, not a writer, but a producer. I've got an episode coming up with Bob, uh, with Bob Clearmountain. Uh, anyway, so let us, uh, let us get over to Holly and let us listen to uh, what she has to say. Um, and of course, do check me out on Twitter at Mitch Lafon, also on Instagram at Mitch underscore Lafon. And of course, there's the Rock Talk with uh, Mitch Lafon Facebook page, and so on and so forth. Um, yeah, you know, I, I, I'm 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 excited. Let let us get over. Oh, and I, I do have to add this thing: Alan Niven is uh, is is set to return soon. He has been uh, doing what he's been doing, uh, getting uh, better. And anyway. We will have an episode with Alan Niven and Ginger from the Wild Hearts coming up that you will not want to miss. I do not want to disclose what was talked about just yet, but it is far beyond, far beyond music and absolutely essential listening. And no, that is not to be arrogant or to pat myself on the bat. It is because the subject matter is one that has touched... Um, the lives of many people, and I think that uh, folks have either gone through something like this or have known somebody who's gone through something like this, and so I think you will find it exceptionally compelling. Anyway, here we are. Here is the one, the only, the mighty Holly Knight. We are speaking with a songwriter, Holly Knight. She, of course, has written some of the greatest songs that we've known, whether it's for Tina Turner, Aerosmith, Ace Fraley, Cheap Trick, uh, Hollow Notes, Lou Graham, or others. Uh, Holly, an absolute, absolute pleasure to talk to you. Hi. L l let me get right into to the songwriting, and I'll start with the, the in incredibly obvious question, but what is a good song? What makes a good a song good? Is it the lyrics? Is it the performance? Because you look at a song like Better Be Good To Me by by Spider and, of course, by Tina Turner. 
one has a modicum of success and one is wildly successful, and yet it's the same song. Um, talk to me a little bit about what makes a good song for you. Wow. Uh, I guess it's really down to something that I respond to in a way that catches my attention. And, uh, you know, I think it's a combination of everything. I don't think it's just one thing. I think, first of all, when it comes to the music, if it's sort of the, the, the same old chords I've heard before, it doesn't really capture me as much as if there's something outside the box about it, but still melodic. And um, I think a lot of songs fall short because the music is great, but then the lyrics are just, you know, not very intelligent or catchy. They don't even have to be intelligent, but they have to be catchy so that I want to hear it again, you know? Um, and then even, it doesn't even end there. It also goes on to who's going to interpret it because I've had hit songs and I've gone in the studio to, potential hit songs, let's say, um, I've gone in the studio with someone that says, I love that song, I want to cut it. So we do a fast thing of it, you know, fast rendering of it, only for me to get bummed out and find out that they can't sing the song and bring it, you know. So I think it's it's a lot of things. Yes, yeah, it's, it's the overall package. So let me let me start at the at the beginning with with Spider, a band that, of course, for for Kiss fans included Anton Fig. Um, was your sort of view of making it into the music business? Were you, were you determined to be a recording artist? and have this successful band go on forever? Or was it sort of, because, you know, when I spoke to Jim Valens, he, he was part of PRISM, and he said, yeah, you know what, I did PRISM, and then I realized touring wasn't for me. What was sort of your experience with, with bands and Spider and, and, and trying to achieve success? Um, I loved being in a band, actually, and um, I started out as a musician and will always end up at the end of the day. I'm a musician as well as a songwriter. Um, I mean, I sit down and I'll play classic music, which I don't, you know, I didn't write any of that, but I still get a lot of joy out of playing it as a musician um, and whatever my interpretation of it is. Uh, I think I joined the band because I just wanted to be a rock star, you know, and I wanted to have a way of getting paid to do to do something I loved. It just seemed like such a con to me. I thought if I could pull that off and get paid to do it, um, it'd be great because I'd be doing it anyway, you know. Um, like if I'd become a doctor or something, I'd still be playing all the time. So how great would that be if I could make money? And um, I don't think the fame part of it was that big a deal for me, although I loved being sort of on, you know, on peer with a lot of bands that before I became a signed artist, I felt like I was more considered more of a fan. And then once I got signed, I felt like I'm one of you guys, you know, I've got a record deal and, and I love that. And I loved playing live. It was so much fun, but I didn't like the other stuff of being a, in a band. Cause there's always politics and drama and competitiveness and, you know, anybody that's in a band will <laughs> understand what I'm saying. Um, and I didn't like doing all the other stuff, like you'd have to do phoners and basically kiss ass to radio programmers just to get them to play your song. And sometimes you'd have to do that in person. And I didn't like doing all the photo sessions and all that other crap I could, could care less about. So I started out, this is a long answer, uh, as a musician. And then because everybody was writing in the band, I thought, well, I should be running songs too. And 
because what they're writing sounds pretty bad. How how bad could I be? You know, so that's really when I started writing. And even at that point, I hadn't made a conscious decision like I'm going to be a songwriter for a career. That just kind of evolved um, organically. As my relationship with the band devolved, my ability to be a songwriter started to move very quickly, you know? Well, um, yeah, so... Yeah, and, and and hopefully, as a Kiss fan, you're going to tell me that you and Anton get along these days. But um, let's you you as mentioned a Kiss fan. Well, I'm a Kiss fan, so I love Anton because he did, of course, two albums with them. Um, but oh, but yeah, I'm a fan of his, but not because of Kiss. I mean, I, he actually he and I dated for two and a half years while I was in the band Spider. Oh, wow. And he's you know he's done a lot of stuff besides Kiss. So when you said Kiss fan, I wasn't sure what you meant at first. Oh, I meant me. Um, um, but let, let me ask. I'm you. an Anton fan. <laughs> Yeah, he, he's great. But let me ask you just real quick, because you mentioned the word competitive. You know, I, I spoke to Jim Valance, I spoke to Desmond Child and a few other songwriters, and there was, they conveyed a sense of competitiveness around songwriting about, you know, we all went and wrote with Ozzy, we all went and wrote with Kiss, we all went and wrote with Bon Jovi, but we wanted to make sure that it was our songs that got on the album and not Jim's and not Desmond's and not Holly's. Um was that mm-hmm. something that you shared as well, that this competitive edge of, okay, the calls come out and I got to beat these other guys? No. Okay. I never, the only one I ever felt that way with, well, I'm not even going to mention the person, but it was another woman and um, she would basically do anything to get her songs on the record um, in as much as she would sabotage uh, whatever you had set up. And that's all I'm going to say on the matter. But other than that, no, I never, because I was so different from them anyway, you know. It seemed like each of those writers you mentioned wrote for, with the exception of Desmond, who he and I pretty much satellited around the same records, and we both got, got on them, you know. And our styles are so different that, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know if the competitiveness that I was talking about was when I was in a band, and, you know, our manager was Bill Coyne, who managed Kiss and, and eventually Billy Idol. Um, he had this setup with Kiss where everybody was an equal partner in the band as far as songwriting was concerned. So if two people wrote um, the song, everybody in the band shared in the revenue. And he did that because he thought it would take away the competitiveness of, oh, you have the singles and you have songs on the record and I don't. Which may or may not have, I've never asked them, but it may or may not have worked with Kiss, but it certainly, certainly didn't work in my case because I was writing all the singles. And it, it still, there was still competitiveness because it was like, well, you have your name on more songs than I do. And just stupid, petty shit like that. So basically, that's why I left the band after the second record. I, I was on the road and um, got in a fight with the singer and. Uh, just said, you know, after this tour, I'm gone, I'm done. And I left and moved to California, and that's really when I started pursuing, you know, I always thought, oh, I'll be in a band again, but right now this is working for me. You know, I was starting to get covers. It wasn't only just Better Be Good to Me, which um, we recorded, and then six months later, Tina did it on her private dancer record, but there was John Waite, and he cut a song I wrote called Change. And then... Those were two songs that I had written in Spider, but then I started going, hmm, maybe I should be writing now and see what I can do. And so the first cover I ever got was with, uh, not ever got, but once I moved to California 
from writing a new song was Love is a Battlefield with Pat Benatar. And then it happened very quickly for me. Um, I was lucky because I'm sure it's not like that now. There's just exponentially so many more writers now than there were then, you know? Oh, there really are. So what was the process for a young songwriter? Because we all have this dream of we're going to move to California and we're going to become rich and famous and, mm-hmm. you know, a million dreams get shattered, but yours didn't. You moved sure. out. So how does how does a young sort of, and, you know, we'll call a rookie Holly Knight write a song like Love is a Battlefield and get it to an established artist like, like Pat Benatar? Was it you knew somebody who knew somebody or how do you get yeah, your song? No, okay. I was, you, you, you do kind of have to know somebody because, you know, if it's unsolicited, they're just, they're not even going to listen to it unless you were lucky enough to meet them, you were networking, which is a good thing I would tell everybody that's trying to get in the business. Network and, you know, go and inv- go to anything you're invited to, even if it's the opening of an envelope. Just go and try and network because sometimes you can be talking to someone that happens to be pretty high up in publishing or whatever, and you might establish a conversation in which they'll say, oh, send me something, you know? Uh, so for me... We Spider had signed to uh, Dreamland Records, and Mike Chapman, who owned the company with Nikki Chin, um, signed us. And he was my mentor. The whole reason we got involved with Dreamland, Dreamland was because I wanted to work with him because I thought he was an amazing producer and songwriter. And um, so he became sort of my mentor, and I wrote a lot of those songs in the beginning, not all of them but a good portion of the best ones were with him because we had a just we we had an incredible chemi- chemistry as songwriters which is a hard thing to find you know oh chemistry to find yeah. That chemistry yeah so uh, so let me ask you this you've written for many different artists and we've mentioned a few we've mentioned Pat Benatar and Bon Jovi and and, and Bonnie Tyler and, a lot of the bands that you've written for, uh, you know, Animotion, very different styles. You're, you're certainly not going to say that Kiss and Animotion are the same band. You're certainly not going to say that the Divinals and right. Lou Graham are the same band. So, like Shaka Khan, yeah. Or right. Shaka Khan. So talk to me yeah. about when you approach a song and you're writing for that, do you just write a song and they adapt it to their style? Or do you sort of have to, in your head, say, okay, Paul is going to sing this. Um, Lou Graham is going to, how do you sort of differentiate for the, because if you write a sort of a cookie cutter song, it's just like, well, it's just Hall and Oates doing Holly Knight. It's just, you know what I mean? So, so how do you make sure that they get the song that is best for them? Well, I think they all like to pride themselves in thinking that if they hear a good song, a good song could be recorded in any number of ways. And if they have the vision to, you know, take what's, there, they're the hard part to find, which is a good song. They can produce it any way they want. I mean, the song I wrote, this song called Baby Me with Billy Starnberg, he's, uh, he's sort of from the same era as Desmond and I, and he wrote Like a Virgin and Two Colors. And anyway, we wrote a song together and we demoed it thinking we were going to get it to Madonna. So the demo was kind of more, you know, synthesized and stuff. And Chaka Khan heard and said she wanted to cut the tune. But when she cut it, she did it in an, in an R&B sort of format. So it was very different, like almost like a different song, but the song was still there, you know. Um, but so I just find the simpler the demo, the better, like a good drum beat and a keyboard and guitar and an incredible vocal, you know. Um, 
that that's probably, especially nowadays, I, you know, it's hard to say. There isn't any one answer. I mean, a lot of times you almost have to make the record and give it to someone. And then sometimes they'll even say, oh, well, we want to buy the production or the track and we're going to put so-and-so's name on it. But um, I guess the whole point is whatever it takes to put a, that song across that it's going to grab someone in the heart and go, wow, you know, because they hear a lot of stuff. Um, does that make sense? It, it absolutely does. And uh, I'm going to get over here just quickly to to streaming. You, you know, um, how has streaming affected you as a songwriter? Because the, there there was a sense that back in the day, you know, in the 80s and 90s, if you had a successful song on an album, you got all the publishing and off you were. And now, is that the same well, thing? Well, you didn't that, get all the publishing, but, but you got, other than that, yeah. You, you know, <laughs> but, you, but you had a, a greater share of publishing. How, how does that work now with streaming? Is it devastating to songwriters or is it actually beneficial to songwriters? I think it's... Um... I think it's in the long run, if you do all the number and the calculating, I'd say it's devastating because, you know, you see so many like hits on, say, YouTube, and it says 235 million or a billion hits. And you're thinking, well, that's impressive for the artist that they have that many people that want to hear their song. But it also translates to a billion hits. You, the, the songwriter didn't get paid, you know. Now, there are certain artists, they have channels, and they've sort of worked out some sort of thing with with YouTube, which I haven't and probably should, because I get played all over the place and don't receive any income off of YouTube. So there's that element, you know, whether it's Spotify or Pandora, the writers are just, I don't know how they make a living as writers anymore, because you can say the artist makes a living because they go out on tour, and they have merchandising, and, you know, it's that whole 360 thing where, the branding of that artist translates into income on a lot of different, you know, avenues. And publishing is just one of them, you know. It used to be the record was the center of the uh, the piece, and then everything would funnel out from there. Now it's the artist. And so the record's kind of like just another piece of merchandising in a weird way. And then the other thing I was going to say is because they're – Unless you're really a diehard fan and you're going to go to Apple, you'll never know who wrote what. You'll never know what musicians played. You'll never know who they wanted to thank, um, who produced the record. It, all the things that were on a vinyl record or a CD uh, are now gone. So I don't know how you carve a name out for yourself unless you hire, hire a PR agent, which, you know, that seems kind of ludicrous because you'd have to pay for it and you wouldn't have the money for it. So, yeah, I think it's a really, I think it's much harder for writers now. It really is. So, in fact, let me let me take you up on that because... Sorry to sound so mundane and, and negative, but, you know... No, but, I mean, really that's, that's the, the reality. The reality, yeah. listen, I I'm was... I'm lucky. Yeah. I'm lucky. I came from a different era. I built, built up a catalog. You know, that's one thing I would say to writers is if you've written hits, just, you know, and you can hold on to that copyright or even a piece of it and certainly your writing share... There are ways to sell that in the future as a catalog and make money, but you have to have big hits in there that people want. Yeah, and in fact, I, I was I was out last night at this hailstorm concert with the head of promotions for Sony, and we we had this discussion, and he was like, you know what? I don't know how songwriters do it because mm -hmm. we own the songs or we own this, so we make money, 
And the mm-hmm. bands, they don't make money, but they can go on tour and sell merch and stuff. So mm-hmm. he said he doesn't understand how the gyms and the Hollies and the stuff make money anymore. And I was like, wow, that seems wholly well, unfair, okay quite frankly. We, but you're a different era. We did okay. We did okay because we were able to sell our catalogs and we're rich and, and, and famous because we was like different um, era compared to now. It's the people starting out now that it's like it's, you know, it's. I don't know how they do it either. It breaks my heart. Um, I will say, though, uh, that if there are people out there that are writers or song, uh, you know, musicians, if you can get songs in, say, a movie or a TV show or get to be a theme for a TV show, you can get some money from that. Um, you know, like they call them sync licensing fees, and that's one way to make some money. But it's not like when... <laughs> You know, uh, I mean, unless I guess you're on a record where the album is just so massively big, you're going to make, yeah, you'll make some money Um, because those artists will actually sell a lot of records at their concerts and things like that. You know what I mean? So those are mechanicals. Right. But but uh, sync rights, I guess, is sort of the way to go. I mean, uh, to have sort of a a rag doll uh, be a top Mm -hmm. 10 single is very sort of hit and miss these days. But if you're in the new, whatever Arnold Schwarzenegger movie and that movie plays forever and Mm -hmm. always on HBO, you're sort of good to go. So, so the art, do you think the art of writing has changed where now it's not really an expression of an emotion or a feeling, but it's really a commercial, really a a commercial uh, endeavor where it's like, okay, I have to do A plus A equals B because it goes in this movie and that's how I'm going to pay to get my kids through college. I mean, it's 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 a horrible thing to think that that's why you would be songwriting, you know, and I've found in the past, like when I had publishing deals, um, like I would have to meet a certain amount of songs, like a, a requirement of how many I would write a year. And, and if I hadn't written those at the end of the year, I would just start writing stupid shit. And it was always the worst stuff I ever wrote, which I hope no one ever hears, you know, because it wasn't coming from a good place. And I do think the art of songwriting has drastically changed. And, um, you know, there's a lot of good records out there, but if you were to strip them down and ask someone to play on guitar and sing one of those songs, half of them, you wouldn't even be able to translate them into songs, you know? Um, I think that's the, 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 I'm not a big country fan, but I've actually been going down there writing a, a little bit because I sort of feel like at least they still have the respect of what they call the craft. I mean, I even hate to think of songwriting as a craft, but at least, you know, time, a great amount of time is spent on um, trying to write good lyrics, which I think is very important. Um, but, you know, my style of, of, of writing, I think I've kind of kept up with the times, but the hard thing is is that the music business is very posse-driven, so and I'll explain what I mean by that in a second, but even having been inducted in the Songwriters Hall of Fame, it's like it's hard for me to get on projects that I want to get on to, and I have to really, really hustle and then wait it out, and most of the time I just kind of get blown off to the side and it doesn't happen. And, um so what, and what I mean by posse is like they have their own group of people they work with and they don't want to step outside of that. And half those people aren't even really writers. They just kind of hang out and make suggestions about production. And a lot, it, you know, it, a lot of that's changed compared to what it used to be when you would just write a great song, demo it, get it to a band. And for me, it was like I loved working with rock bands, you know, even more than like solo artists. Although I have to say that Tina Turner was um, an exception to that. You know, because she was like my muse. She's she's cut more songs of mine than anybody. 
Oh, and so, she's amazing. Um, well, I, let me take you up on that whole idea of clicks and posses and stuff. You know, I, I cover a lot of quote unquote hair metal bands and stuff. And they're like, ah, you know, you're not part of the cool kids anymore because that's so passe. And, and when you say, oh, uh, the, the Bullet Boys are coming to town, people are like, ah, it's so passe. As a songwriter, do you, do you get the same sense that sometimes you're shut out from the industry or some portions of the industry because, oh, well, you're a writer from the 80s or you're a writer from the 90s. It, d- does that happen to you or is that mostly for bands that had their heyday on MTV in 1984? And, and for songwriters, as long as you write a good song, doesn't matter what era you're from or who you're with, right? Do, 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 you, do, you, do you understand what I'm sort of saying? Like, do, have you been yeah, shut up? I think it's just like, I, I think that, you know, there's this mentality of the emperor's clothes and, you know, um, the latest, greatest flavor of the month. It's like people are like sheep and, you know, they hear a name or read something in social media and they, oh, I've heard of that name. And, you know, it's like, it's very um, superficial, you know. Um, as far as what you're asking me about me, I don't know. I don't know what people say, except that I know that 80s, or the 80s are hotter than ever. And if they were lame yesterday, they're very, you know, they're very hot now and will probably be lame again tomorrow. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, right, like like bell bottoms. I, yeah, well, I, I love flared pants. They're great boots, so. Of course. Um, you know, if they're, whether they're current or not, I've never really, I've never really, thought about that but yeah i mean when it comes to production and i have teams i've had to sort of up my game as far as like you know i might have recorded a lot of guitars in them and then i give them to chris lord Algie, and he takes them on and says you know that that's not what's getting played on the radio if you want it to sound like something to get covered this is what it is and it's like you know and he does a lot of hard rock too but i'm just saying depending on who i'm trying to target to cut a song you know um, um, but I would, I would hope a great song is a great song, and you know, I don't know. I, there's, there's not even such a function anymore as A and R. There used to be the artists and repertoire department where they would develop artists over time, and they don't really do that a lot anymore. I mean, I, they've done it with Hellstorm, which is a good thing, and they're doing it with the Struts. Um, but that's, and I was talking to the A and R guy for the Struts because I really want to work with them. Um, I called him up and he said, you know why? I wish you'd call me sooner because they just finished the record yesterday and you would have been perfect with them. And I was like kicking myself, you know. Um, but I said, I, I, I like the way you're building them slowly and giving them some room to grow organically. You don't see that anymore. It's like half the time someone gets signed. and Well, I wouldn't say half the time. That's an exaggeration. But I know several artists that got signed and then they never released their records. They made a whole record. They put out one or two singles to test the market. And then just never got released and then eventually got dropped. So it's, again, it's such just superficial shit that just... Yeah, and, oh, and it happens a lot. Ever. The, the mm-hmm. unreleased records uh, of the world are, are, are plentiful, uh, unfortunately. Let me... Oh, yeah, uh, there's a graveyard. There's a graveyard out there. I asked you a little bit before about writing for different artists in terms of different styles from, you know, Animotion to Kiss to Bonnie uh-huh. Tyler to... Um, but but I, I do want to follow up on that in the sense of writing for male voice and female voice. When you know you're writing a song and you know Paul Stanley singing it, is it different for you? Do you approach it differently than writing a song where you know Pat Benatar is going to write it for you? Or is it sort of the same answer of before is a good song is a good song is a good song and they'll interpret it their own way? No, I think that lyrics for guys are completely different than lyrics for women. You know, I mean... <laughs> 
men are hunters and women are gatherers. And so women always had the social thing and they would, you know, do you know that women speak 20,000 words a day or utter sounds or make facial expressions, 20,000 a day, and men it's 7,000. And um, so, you know, it's a, it's a very different flow of lyrics when you're writing for men than women. But that being said, I always, if I'm writing a rock tune, I'd always like to have a male singing on it, even if it's for a woman. Because if you had someone like, like say, Lizzie Hellstorm and she heard a vocal and it was a guy, she'd probably relate to it more because, you know, that's kind of her style. Like, same thing with Tina Turner, you know, it just sounds tougher when a guy's singing it. So a woman hearing that, if they want to come across, you know, as tough or heavy, uh, would, I think, respond better to that. If I sent a demo to Tina Turner with someone that sounded like Tina Turner, it would probably turn her off, you know. Um, and, of course, nobody sings like her, so <laughs> you got oh. that in the mix, too. Completely uh, incredible and, and, and unique. She, she, she's just masterful. I mean, listen, I, I'm a rock guy, and, and I love my Iron Maidens and my Aerosmiths and stuff, but... Mm-hmm. Tina Turner. I mean, I remember watching that stuff on MTV and Much Music in Canada, and you couldn't turn that off. The songs were just too good, delivered with too much emotion. Uh, the duet with Brian Adams, It's Only Love, is one of the best things I've ever seen. It really is perfect. Um, just real quick, uh, you, of course, worked with Bill O'Coyne, and he is credited with bringing Kiss to that next level. And, of course, he did a lot of work with, with Billy Idol. What was it like working with with Bill, and what was sort of his vision for a band? Because you know, with with Kiss, it would be very showy, and with Billy Idol, it would be you know, be you know, have that sneer and the punk. Uh, what was sort of his vision for you, and and why did it work or not work with Bill, and and what was he like to have as a manager? Because he certainly had a grand vision. Well, I think as far as managers go, I think Bill was a genius. And I think that he was, I don't know if he ever did commercial marketing or something. I, th- I thought I read that somewhere years later, but that would make sense to me. Um, I don't know whose vision Kiss, I don't know if it was Bill or Kiss. It probably was Kiss. And then Bill took it to another level. It made it more marketable. But, and, you know, before Kiss, there was Alice Cooper. So you can take take it from there, you know. Um, as far as Billy Idol, I think that it's the same thing. I think Billy was like this raw gem, you know, and he had Generation X, and then I think Bill just teamed him with the right people. I I suggested Steve um, Stevens to him. I'm the person that actually told him to go see the band that Steve Stevens was in because he was looking for a guitarist. Oh, wow. Yes, yeah. And... Um, it's funny because Billy and I were in the same place. Like he was, he was looking for a manager and he came to town and we became friends and I was in a band that was just starting out. And then we saw each other like a couple of years later and he had done Rebel Yell and I had had all these hits and we just looked at each other and we were like, give each other the high five. Like we did it, you know? Um, as far as our band, um, gosh, I'm sorry I'm taking so long to answer these things. That's just how my brain is. No, no, it's it's I'm great. All over the place. Um, I think he saw that our band was very musical. I mean, we were sophisticated musically in a way, and but we had this pop sensibility because I was writing these sort of pop tunes, and um, you know, because I I had had classical training, then you had Anton and Anton. 
I'm not sure who went where. I think Anton and Keith, one of them went to Berkeley and one of them went to Boston School of Music, but they were trained, you know. And we wrote some, like, very sort of interesting musical stuff as well, and the fact that there were two females. And then we didn't even think of this part. I brought in a black bass player, because I thought he was funky as hell and amazing. And at the time, we got a lot of um, interesting remarks in the press because we had three South Africans, at, and apartheid was going on at the time, and they were saying how cool that was. And I was like, I never even thought of it. I just thought he was a great bass player, you know. Um, but I just don't think there were a lot of bands out there like that. I mean, there was Fleetwood Mac, but they weren't as hard as we were. And there was Heart, and that was kind of it. We got comparison, comparisons to Heart as well. Um, but I think, you know, under different circumstances, we had a lot of weird things happen to us. We probably could have been really big because there was nobody out there like that. You know, the, the lead singer, Amanda... She was from South Africa, but she had a very bluesy voice. So, in fact, when Tina Turner did Better Be Good to Me, she pretty much copied everything that Amanda had sung on it. But that's one of the things I loved about Tina. She's one of the few people that never changed her demos. And if we made suggestions on something, she ver- verbatim would record them that way, which was really cool. Not, not all artists are like that, you know. Well, in fact, so, so, so let me ask you about that. In terms of... Uh, other artists covering your songs, uh, you know, you, you obviously send whatever ragdoll over to Aerosmith or you send Hide Your Heart to to Kiss and Ace Fraley. Um, what is it like when you hear a band that you don't expect cover your song? Are, are they, d- d- is that something that you take as a compliment? Like, hey, look at that. There's 10 versions of this song. Or do you sit back sometimes and go, oh, my God, what are they doing? This is awful. No, I've always considered it a compliment, and, and there okay. are certain songs that I've cut that that are so weird and different, and there's so many of them. I mean, there are so many, and a lot of times I get a cover on a really big show or something, and nobody tells me, and I have to find out because, you know, I kind of have this neighborhood watch kind of, except it's the music business where my friends will, if they see it on something or hear it, they te- I get this text, I just heard your song, I just saw the song, congratulations on this show. And it's like, I didn't even know about it. Because the truth is, once you write a song, the first time it's different. You get to choose and say yes or no to who cuts the song. But once it's cut, it's out there. And anybody can cut it as long as they pay the fees to the writers. Right, the mechanicals. But they don't need your permission. So, I, I mean, all these things happen with that show Glow, which is really a big show that I had the theme song in it, and they used another song, Invincible, at the end. They used The Warrior in in the beginning. Um, That show, Stranger Things, I have something on that. It's it's just funny. It's like all the time. It would be nice if I had publishers that come and said, hey, we got you covering, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, no. (laughs) No, you don't have have creative control of your work. in 1988, you put out... If they want to change the lyrics, though, like if they're doing it for a commercial and they want to change the lyrics, they have to ask or they they have to get my permission or make a, a, what they call a derivative and still get my permission to make a new version. Right. But, they can't but, alter it. They can cut it, but they can interpret it any way they want. I mean, Pat Benatar interpreted it the way she wanted. Our demo was like very different from what she ended up with. But, the, you know, the song was there. The song is the same. I Love is a Battlefield. I've even cut a version of it, uh, which is like a Nine Inch Nails version with a, a singer named Sarah Skinner. And it's awesome. And it's been on Dynasty, the reboot, and 
a few things and it's completely different, you know. And, and it was also on your solo album from, from 88. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, just quickly, uh, on that solo album, you made one. Um, what motivated you to, to get out there and say, hey, you know what? I write songs. Let me put these on an album. And then what sort of dissuaded you from making a second and a third and a fourth? Like, what was the experience like and, and sort of what got you to, to, to enter the experience and what sort of said, okay, let me just go back to songwriting and, and, and just be, you know, in the background and be Holly, the, the songwriter? Well, if I could do it, I mean, I don't have very many regrets. regrets. I have one or two professionally. And um, one of my regrets is that I made the wrong kind of record. I was writing at the time with Paul and Oates and Tommy Mottola was managing me. And I was kind of in that mode. So I ended up making a record that had far too many R&B sort of riffy things. And I'm not an R&B singer. Um, And... So if I had made a record that was more just like a Joan Jett or a rock record and didn't care, like, and just really belted it, I'm not a belter either, but that would have been the kind of record I should have made. That being said, um, I, it just came to me. Everybody was saying, oh, you should sing. You sing on all these records, like in the background, you're a great singer, sing. I'm not a great singer, and I never was. And had I been a great singer, then I would have been a rock star, and I would be out there as an artist. Um, so... But it's not like I feel like I took the second best thing or the back seat. I mean, we're all meant to do what we do, you know. And there's so many advantages to being a songwriter where you can write, especially if you're willing to step outside your comfort zone and you can write any style. I mean, I've produced jazz records. I'm working on a musical now. I grew up listening to musical. I still play classical. And rock is still where my heart is at, you know. Um well, so, okay, okay. Let me let me ask you about the musical thing because Kip Winger is writing a musical. Jim Valentine. Everybody writing, is right. And when I talk to them about it, they are exceptionally frustrated with the process. It, they're used it's, to you write a song in five minutes and it goes on a record and everybody makes a ton of money. But with the musical, is you write it and you write it and next year you write it again. Then you How? workshop it, then you do 29-hour readings. It's a clusterfuck. Yeah. It's a nightmare. You have to be like a masochist to want to do it. And so, in fact, I've been working six years on my musical, and by the time, you know, I was getting somewhere, it's like all these other musicals suddenly came out, and they were all like, you know, women in the music. This is like Cher, Donna Summer, Alanis Morissette's doing one, Benatar wants to do one, Huey Lewis just put out one, you know, um, then there's Beautiful's already out there. It's like it's oversaturated. So I'm finding a different market in, in the film world for my first musical. And then I'm writing a second musical, but it has nothing to do with um, this first one. Like this, Because this is the first one is what they call a catalog musical where all my hits are in it, and the second one is an original one. And, you know, there's a lot of judgmental people. It's it's all very friendly on the surface, and you make great friendships. But it's like everybody is waiting for something to happen, so then they take 10 other projects. So every time you have a point where you want to do something in Broadway, everybody's got to check their books, and inevitably half the people are busy doing something else. So you, there's a lot of waiting involved. Um, and then people drop out or get fired. So that's therein lies the frustration that, that they're all talking about, you know. Oh, they're all um, exceptionally and and, and frustrated. There's so many moving parts, you know. There's so many people you have to check with, and it has to work with, and it's, 
you know, I decided to do it as a movie because it's going to be much edgier and the rock edginess that I want. I mean, I'm from New York and I just, there's just, they'd like to say there's not, but there's a lot of rules when it comes to Broadway. The good thing about Broadway is it's one of the few things where you can make money. You know, you'll never go on YouTube and see like big productions unless it was like on something televised like the Tonys because the unions are so tight and you can't go in there with cameras. So if you want to see the musical, you're going to pay for the motherfucking ticket and you're going to pay for the cast album, which rightly so, you know, this is what we do for a living. And if you want to enjoy it, then pay for it, you know. Uh, although I have to say that like some of the tickets that people are charging money for now are, are, are outrageous. Like if you want to go see a band that's, or an artist that's doing a residency in Vegas, like those tickets are $2,000, Oh, very unfun, unfanned friendly. And it's funny with, with the different musicals, it's, how many of the rock stars you meet, you know, uh, Joel Hoekstra, who was with, uh, touring with Sharon Whitesnake. He was on at rock of ages. Uh, uh, Cindy mm-hmm. Lauper's drummer is, is doing the drumming for pretty woman. The musical. It's funny to see all the and work. David from Don Bon Jovi did Memphis. And now yes. he did what a pretty woman or something. Oh no, that was Jim Fallon. No, he did, uh, uh, uh Oh God, some kind of monster one. Um, uh, no, you've got a new one coming out, though. Right. But anyway, yeah, they're, because so you can make money, and it's it, it's an interesting format and process. I mean, I grew up listening to, like, the really sort of, you know, the memorable ones, like Rodgers and Hammerstein and Lerner and Lowe, whether it was, like, Sound of Music or Gigi or South Pacific. I'm really, I love music from the Great American Songbook and songs from the 40s, so I'm a big, like, Tony Bennett fan, and I've worked a lot with his daughter, who's a singer, too. Yeah, but um, but, but, so I'm, but I, I'm all over the place with what I listen to. But but I do get a sense from the different songwriters that I've talked to who who've done musicals. It's it's very much outside of their personality. I, I get a sense that a lot of the songwriters mm-hmm. are. I write a song in five minutes and that's it, or I write mm-hmm. a song in a day and that's it. And these mm-hmm. six year things drives me nuts. Right. <laughs> so. Well, it's more than six years even, and you know I've also become like a screenwriter and. Uh, librettist as far as writing I'm writing the books to my musicals I hired people and I got I didn't like the way I was getting sort of pushed out of the picture so I learned how to do it and um, over time got better at it and so you know it's not that's not as bad when you're working if you're just hired as a writer and you're working with a songwriter you're hired and you're working with the other writers then you constantly have to be beholden to them you know and yeah, no, it's much freer in the rock world. You know, you just you go in there and you turn on your amp or whatever, pick up your acoustic guitar, and you just close the door and you sit and hope that you're going to catch lightning in a bottle, and then you demo it. And it's always like a honeymoon period because nobody else has come in to offer their opinion yet. You know, and you're so happy that you have this amazing song. And then you have to set it out into the world and hope that it gets received the way you want. And it's brutal, you know. It is. And, and, and I'll finish on this. Uh, the term song doctor is, is something that's thrown around in the industry a lot. It, did you see yourself as a song doctor when you were working with these different bands in the 80s? Or did, was it more of a collaborative process? And for folks who don't understand song doctor, it's, you know, whatever. X band writes a song. Yeah, you come in and tighten a screw, but pretty much. Right. Yeah. It, it, was that, I did that you? once and I hated it. And okay. I had a... I was part of a hit with it, um, but I hated doing that because I'm 
I'm very hands-on with everything. Whatever it is I'm going to do, I need to be in there, you know, getting my feet wet. And, like, I, I love the beginning process and all that. So when I was brought in to do this, um, I really was trying to be respectful because the basic, you know, ethos of the song and the basic, the, the music and everything was awesome. But it, it was kind of weird and it didn't have a, didn't have a good title. And I, out of respect to them, I didn't want to change that much. A lot of people come and go, oh, we're going to do this and we're going to change this part because they want to feel like they're making a contribution. And I don't think that's very genuine, you know. So, so I did it once, but I'll never again. I don't like doing that. I, I hate it. Yeah, so you're, so you're not a fixer-upter. So all the songs we look at in your catalog, those are collaborations where you said, okay, we're going to work this yeah. out. Oh, good, because, yeah. And, and except for that, I will say that on the song Better Be Good to Me, I wrote that song, I remember exactly where I was. It was on Sunset Boulevard in his office on 77 Sunset Strip. And I remember the same rolling drum machine that he used on Heart of Glass, we wrote the song to that. And we finished it, and we recorded it. He produced it. And then when I was given, like, the, the, the sheet with the lyrics for the record, it had Nikki's Chin, Nikki Chen's name on it. And I said, well, why is his name on it? He wasn't even in the country when we wrote this. And he said, well, that's just the way it is. <laughs> and I was like, what? So to this day, I've had to give a third to him, and he didn't do anything. Um, which happens and a I lot, have no, by the I way. have no problem saying that on air because it's true. It's like, you know, this happens all the time with people. And, and I vowed that day I was never doing that again um, because it felt like such a ripoff, you know. Yeah, and, and unfortunately, and I'm not going to start naming bands, but some of the bigger bands we've mentioned, I've heard that somebody comes in, a songwriter comes in with a song, and they say, oh, uh, the drum machine should go a little faster, and then they take a songwriting credit, and it's like, uh-huh. Yeah. Or but, if you yeah, want to be done more now than ever, you know, and you see like 10 names on a song, it's like, dude, if you need 10 people to write a song, you shouldn't be calling yourself songwriters, you know, uh, to me, a great songwriter should be able to walk in and write a song, lyrics, music, everything. That's it. You know, that's to me. I mean, it, there are some great people that are like lyricists. But they play enough guitar that they're involved with the music and the melodies and all that. And so, you know, and they want to be. And then there are other people that come in, they call themselves, I guess the term is top line, which we never used. It was just either, here's the song, here's the melody, here's the lyrics. And I think the top line is kind of like, they're, they're people, that's what they call them now, instead of lyricist. Or, yeah, so it, it's, it's, it's song, song by committee, like, <laughs> right? I yeah. mean, it's, it's, it's ridiculous. Um, and I know that we said half an hour, we're at 45, so you've been exceptionally graceful uh, and, and gracious, so thank you. But uh, I will finish with the very sort of pedestrian fan question, but the obvious one is sort of what are sort of the, the two or three songs that, you, I don't know if you want to rank them as the best, but maybe have the best memories, or you're just like, you know what, when when we put out Ragdoll, it just was lightning in a bottle, it was the right song at the right... What are sort of those two or three, I guess maybe Better Be Good to Me is one of them, but what are the ones where you go, yeah, you know what, that's that's where we nailed it. That's that's the real deal. I think The Warrior would be one of those. I wrote that with Nick Gilder, who did Hot Child in the City. He was Canadian. Great, great Canadian. Five away. Yep. Why well, uh, not, Nick? We're, we're, we're Facebook friends, me and Nick. Uh, great song. Yeah. So uh, um, Warrior, uh, I will tell you just real quick, from, from my perspective, I remember seeing the video, and that song just sticks out. That, that to me, 
was one of those great, I don't want to call it a one-hit wonder, but that one, you, you, you think back to high school and you go, yeah, that's, that's a real deal. Um, what else? Would, would qualify. What song was that? What song were you? Warrior. Patty Smythe. Patty Smythe and Warrior. It's funny because hey, uh, because um, Patty told me you know, she when I got inducted into the Songwriting Hall of Fame, she came and sung the Warrior, and so we met for lunch before then. She was telling me I cracked up the, how she hated that video because they made her wear this makeup and this kabuki outfit, and she didn't know what the hell was going on with them, and she just wanted to be in like you know jeans and whatever. And I felt the same way. That was, it was my same reaction when I saw that video. But that's how great the song was. That that you know. It, oh, the song didn't bother you. Well, well, it didn't bother me at all. Um, <laughs> though I do, I do remember the sort of blue, whatever satin. What she was. What about an emotion and obsession? Because again, as a as a Aerosmith, Kiss, Cheap Trick fan, that I shouldn't be listening to that. But that's a great song, and and I know Michael DeBars. And I, was it with you? But he did a slower version later on, and whether it's on an acoustic guitar, or whether it's the Animotion worked up version, it just works. Um, is that that an, song has been cut by so many people, and um, there's a great version by Susan O oh of the Yeah Yeahs, and it's the theme to a show called Flesh and Bone, which is about ballet dancers and all the dirt and smut that goes on behind the. The dance, you know, that scene, yeah. Like, you know, it's like it's like one of those what goes on in their life while they're being ballet dancers. Um, it's an interesting show, but anyway, yeah, it's a cool version of it. And I, that song has been cut in so many movies. I mean, who knew? You know. Oh, it's it's such a great uh, I, song. I would say that Invincible is one of my favorite. Uh, yeah. That that was a song that Pat Benatar did. I feel like that song captured a lot of me and um, change John Waite. And then there are new ones. I mean, I have new songs now. There's some of the best things I've done. And uh, hopefully someone's going to, the right person's going to cut cut them, you know. Yeah, I've had hope- people say they want to cut them. And like I said, the first time around, you get to say yes or no. And um, so I'm just kind of keeping them on ice, you know. Right. Are there bands that come to you from, especially from that day in the '80s, where you went, "Yeah, I, I just, you know, I just don't see, you know, Iron Maiden doing my song." Did that happen quite a bit, or not so much? It happened. It happened, you know, once or twice. But uh, most of the time, I was like thrilled any time to just get someone to cut a song, you know. Um, and they were usually people that were cool or upcoming or someone that I liked. I mean, you know. I wanted Patty Smythe to cut the warrior. I was thrilled when when she said she was going to do it because I was, you know, I had her in mind because at the time Mike Chapman was doing her record, so I was aware of her. So she was like a new artist to me, although she had done, she'd already done Goodbye to You, but I didn't really know much about her. Um, I've never, I've never had. I mean, there's been some cringe-worthy versions of some of my songs, but they're usually like just normal people doing their versions. I mean, I don't know how many versions of the best there are on the internet, but there's a lot. Yeah. Well, and, and uh, there's, there's a whole bunch of versions of hide your heart. And, and I'm never, I'm never really sure if I prefer the Molly hatchet version to the, to the Bonnie Tyler version. They're, they're all great. Anyway, um, I will. I like uh, Ace Freely's version. Isn't it great? Uh, well, in fact, all I all, really like Ace Freely's version. Cause it's like, it's just, I don't know. It's it's rock. It's his vocal. It's rock, and it's like he's not trying so hard to be like 
anything but what he is, you know. Yeah, he, he it, it was a great version. And uh, anyway, on that, I will say, uh, as we say in Montréal, uh, in Montreal, merci beaucoup. Thank you so much. An absolute... De rien. Abs- de rien, bien oui. Il n'y a pas de quoi. See? High school French in, in paid off. No, it's uh, no, it's it's a grand plaisir. It was an absolute pleasure, and of course, I will say this from the bottom of my heart: a lot of your songs have uh, touched me, and of course, a lot of the listeners uh, created memories and created um, all kinds of of joy. And and you brought us up, and you brought us down, and you, you did what you had to do. And so, thank you. And uh, I'll just go quickly to uh, Lou Graham's "Just Between You and Me." Absolutely wonderful song, brilliant, and uh, you know, thank, thank you for you. all of that. Thank you for all all the hard work, and and yeah, I'm not supposed to. That like... was a great interview you did with him, by the way. The the more recent one that I heard, I checked out some of your interviews, and I learned things that I didn't know about him. Which one? Who? Who? Oh, Lou Graham. Lou Graham. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Lou. Lou's Lou's terrific. Uh, you know, he's he's. He, I, I love Lou. Lou. Lou's great, and. Uh, but there you go, and uh, thank you for all these songs. Like I'm saying, uh, listen, I'm not supposed to like Obsession. It, it's not my my wheelhouse, and yet you can't <laughs> deny how great it is. Uh, Patty Smythe. Well, but that you I... have to you you have to look at the artist. Okay, yeah. Animotion is not, a, not is not a group that I would sort of go. <laughs> I wrote for Animotion either. You know, right. I mean, they were pretty much a one hit wonder, and uh, but they had a big hit with that. It's very different than the version I did with Michael DeBars, which was also out first. And it's very different than all the covers. So the song is actually great. You just have to disassociate it from, you know, with all due respect. I mean, I'm not trying to take away anything that, from them. They're really nice guys. And they did a great version of it. But, it, it, you know, it just had a lot of heavy synthesizer. And I think the video with the, you know, the Romans and the togas, <laughs> It's not exactly like an ACDC video, so I get it, you know. But you can be proud of the song. Oh, proud yeah. that you like the song. It, it really is. <laughs> and I guess for you also, um, since... But the song title is also Imagine very if important. the Struts cut Obsession. Like, imagine if, imagine if Def Leppard cut it. Because mm. Joe Elliott was in love with that song, and when I finally met him, he said, I love that song. I said, well, you guys should cut it. And he was like, well, no, it's already been a hit or whatever, or we would have cut it. That would have been cool. Yeah, but they they just covered the uh, the Depeche Mode song. Um, what, uh, what what Depeche Mode does? They, they did People Are People or something. Anyway, they just did a Depeche Mode song. Oh. So there's no reason why they can't do an Obsession song. I mean, hey, send it back okay. to Joe. We oh. love Joe. Uh, <laughs> merci. Thank you so much. You're welcome. It was a pleasure talking to you. Absolutely. And uh, I look forward to hearing it. Yes, and hopefully at some point we maybe could do a, a part two and, and, and dig in maybe on a on a song-by-song basis, time, memories. You know, how, how does, sure. you know, Cheap Trick come up with space, even though, um, who was the guy who did it first? Uh, uh, um, who did Charlie space? Charlie Sexton. Charlie Sexton, right, correct. So there's, there's uh-huh. a lot of great stories to go through about who did what. and I cut, a, I, did, I cut a version of that fairly recently with a girl who's a great rock singer. Lena Hall, and uh, she nailed it. I just have to find the right vehicle for it. But is it out? No, it's not out. No, it's not out. Oh, I want I want to hear that because Lap Luxury was sort of really. The grand... I'll send it to you. I'll, I'll send it to you. Oh, absolutely! I'd love to hear because uh, Lap Luxury was a great rediscovering of Cheap Trick for me. I'd sort of. After '81 and, and Baby Loves to Rock, what was that album called? All shook up. I, uh, I just went, eh, I'm done with them. And then this came out, and I was like, 
oh, you know what? Ghost Town, pretty damn good. <laughs> Space, pretty damn yeah. good. Don't be cruel. Well, we know that don't be, you know, the flame, a lot of covers or outside songwriters, but made for a great album. So can't complain. Just lyrically, that is, Space is a great song for a woman to sing. It's cooler when a woman says to a guy, I need some space, come back some other time and place, you know? Yep. It's cooler when a woman says it. When a guy says it, it's like, yeah. Well, because that's what guys always say. <laughs> They're like, yeah. anyway. I know. That's why it's more empowering when a woman says it. Like, um, you know. Oh, oh well, I hope. Sure. What was the name of the artist you said that just recorded it? it her name is Lena Hall. She was in a, 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 a musical, uh, Hedwig and the Angry Inch, and she wanted Tony for playing the guy in it. But she's a great rock singer. You wouldn't think a Broadway singer would be a great rock singer, but she's phenomenal. Oh, really I, hope, is, uh, I, I hope it finds its its way to to like you said a vehicle like whether it's a movie or a Netflix or or whatever I hope it comes out because uh, I think that'd be it'd be curious to hear that and uh, yeah. yeah I'm going to send you another song she sung on because and it, it's called AMF Yo Yo which is an anagram I'm not going to tell you what it is you'll figure it out when you hear the chorus okay I'm um, down for that I'm down for that. But it's, yeah, it's definitely another uh, empowering song that has to be sung by a woman. So there uh, you go. As Warrior had to be sung by Patti Smythe. I'm not sure. Yeah. I- I'm not sure. It would have been bombastic for a guy to sing it, but for a girl to sing it, it's like, okay, you better better watch yourself, you know. True. But I, I can't see Steve and Tyler running around saying, I'm a warrior. It, 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 no, I mean, exactly. It, it would be bombastic. It'd be stupid. But women have to fight for our, you know, our place, especially in the, the man cave of rock world, you know. Yeah. Well, um, hopefully changing. But that's days, why it but... works with people like, you know, Lizzie Hellstorm. She's great. Yeah. I, I had a nice uh, long chat with her before the show yesterday. She She is absolutely a rock star. I mean, she is not just a guitarist oh, yeah. in she, she, and But she's also a rock star on a personal level. Very nice, very caring for the fans. Any fan that got near her, she takes mm-hmm. time, she, she pats them on the back, she, zero pretension, zero attitude. I mean, that's, that's a real rock star right there. She, she's terrific. And uh, there you go. Merci, madame. Thank you very much. Okay, you have a good day. You too now. Bye-bye. Bye. You're listening to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon. Rock Talk. 